growth requires more than capital. Why do we call it the cheat code? Nobody said growth had to be fair. Revenue solves everything. Welcome to the cheat code. What was our fastest path to revenue? We tend to like to do things the hard way. What's the cheat code? It's giving yourself an unfair advantage over the others. What is it that really works and how are we going to grow these organizations? That's our cheat code. Hey guys, welcome back again. You're on another episode of The Cheat Code. As you may have noticed, Mr. Josh Wagner is again on a plane. I think for some reason, every VC conference in the world is in the month of September. Um, so I'm joined once again by Sean Kester. Sean, thanks for joining. As always. Absolutely. And of course, we've got another great guest. Probably needs no introduction, but I'll do what everyone does and, and provide one anyway. Uh, so Scott Brinker joins us today. You're, I'm sure that you've seen something that Scott's done, probably have a uh, MarTech landscape map hanging up in office, cube, uh, spare room, whatever it happens to be. But um, so Scott's currently the VP of, of platform ecosystem over at HubSpot, uh, but again, spent time at Ion Interactive, started and, and continues to run cheap MarTech. So there's you know a lot of different ways that you may have been introduced to Scott over the years, but we are very excited to have him on the show. Scott, welcome. Yeah, wow. What a fantastic intro. Uh, thank you. Uh, great to be here. Absolutely. So yeah, I, I know we touched on, or I touched on a lot of kind of random points there, but give kind of the, um, the listeners a, a, a little bit more maybe in-depth background, and then I love the the cheat that you identified. So just kind of run us right into that. Okay. Yeah, sounds great. Um, so I started life as a software engineer, uh, but a very entrepreneurial software engineer. So uh, initially building like multiplayer games and stuff like that. Um, early days of bulletin board systems, uh, you know, the first generation of the web. Uh, but very quickly, right, I learned the lesson that unfortunately every engineer learns that if you build it, they do not necessarily come. Uh, so I got very passionate about marketing. Uh, and then as the, you know, what web was really taking off, I actually found my footing at this intersection between where marketing teams and then like IT and software teams needed to come together and collaborate, uh, which uh, was an extremely hard thing to do, uh, you know, 20 years ago. Some would argue it's still not perfectly solved here today, um, you know, but anyways, that sort of took me down a path where I did continue as an entrepreneur. I built, as you mentioned, Ion Interactive uh, as a SaaS company for interactive content. Uh, after we sold that, I joined uh, HubSpot to help them build their platform ecosystem. All the amazing MarTech, sales tech, other companies that can integrate to HubSpot. Uh, but yeah, all along, I've sort of kept that passion for the intersection of these two disciplines uh, with the Chief MarTech blog. Uh, I launched the MarTech conference with Third Gore Media about 10 years ago. And so it's been, yeah, leading into my uh, uh, cheat code, uh, you know, on this journey Boy, I almost feel like it's the anti-cheat code, you know, because when I was, you know, we were talking about this prepping for this show, if I think about what's the single most valuable thing to me at this stage in my career, based on everything I've done up to this point, I'd say it's the, the proverbial 10,000 hours, you know, they say like really become an expert in something you have to spend the time, you know, right. over like two decades of doing that. Um, you know, it's like I've built up such a deep repository of like the neurons and the contextual relationships of these things that when a new question comes up or a new opportunity comes up in the present, 
it it feels just like it's relatively easy to like align that with the things I already know and like oh well clearly this is the path through this that I suspect that I not had like uh, that repository of those ten thousand hours it would just be a lot harder to be able to connect the dots. Yeah, I think the the interesting thing about you know first and foremost like the the cheat code right like it's a always a loaded term and I I think the the best way that you know, that we gravitate towards and explain it is like, what is someone willing to do that is uncommon in nature that yields uncommon results? And and these days, certainly in the age of like being able to Google anything, right? Like if I want to, you know, frame a house, I want to, you know, cook chicken piccata, whatever it happens to be like that information's at my fingertips, but I'm executing, you know, in accordance with someone else's guidance. Like that's, I'm, I'm you know, certainly with myself as an example, like I am not a cook, I'm not an expert. I can follow some some instructions and so on. But what you're talking about is is much deeper than that, right? Um, and so I'm curious, like that, you know, everyone throws out that ten thousand hours. Like, is that an actual qualifier? I mean, like, what is the what is the amount of time and and effort that really goes into like quantifying that statement? Yeah, and I mean, I'm using it, uh, you know, very much in the colloquial uh, oh. sense. Uh, I am not, despite what you might think from that logo map, I don't actually suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, <laughs> you know, and so I'm not actually tracking, you know, uh, how I spend my time day to day. In fact, actually, that might be a sort of like a variation on this cheat code is one of the reasons I've been able to sustain that 10,000 hour investment over a few decades and something that, again, actually hasn't been my vocation. You know, it's always been sort of like my passion project on top of, you know, mm-hmm. it's doing to really earn a living is I actually, I work very hard to keep it as a passion project to like, you know, not feel forced to like, oh, I have to write something this week because I have to write something every week. I uh, I keep my mind open that, oh, if there's something I'm interested in and I want to write this up, I do it, and that's great. And if there's a week when I'm like, yeah, just not feeling it for any reason, like I, I don't feel the pressure to have to do it, which is a real luxury. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why I've been able to do this now for a couple decades and not burn out from it um, is because I keep it in that zone where I always feel like it's fun when I'm doing uh, something there. Super important. Yeah, they say, you know, you've got to have passion and purpose to create something meaningful, right? And so, you know, when you, you said you had, you were passionate about the MarTech piece, what was your purpose there? What did you originally set out to try to achieve when you were starting to create that landscape? Well, you know, the first thing was, all right, so the landscape was the second step. You know, the first step when I started this blog, uh, it was a somewhat selfish thing is, okay, here I was. I'm working at a web agency, effectively. We would get hired by the marketing teams of these Fortune 500 companies to build their dream web experience. I was running the technology team at the agency. So the moment the dream gets laid out, hello, it's now my team that actually has to go and talk to that company's IT team about what's going to be the reality of like how we make this happen. And the just like the distance between these two worlds. I mean, people used to say it was like a hostile relationship. It wasn't so much that was hostile. It's just like these folks just lived in entirely different universes. They spoke entirely different languages. The way they thought about things were different. But at the same time, while there was just so much like conceptual space between them, 
when you looked at what actually needed to be built, what actually the business had needed to do to move forward, it's like, okay, wow, these two things are going to be like totally entangled. And so in some ways I started the Chief MarTech blog as a little bit of a therapy of like, okay, listen, it's clear we've got to have people who can like speak both tech and marketing. And, you know, maybe there's this marketing technologist, you know, who has a foot in each world. And so for me, just thinking about like that and then ultimately starting to connect with some of the other early people who were those hybrid uh, professionals as well, too. It was, yeah, a little bit of a sense of community. The MarTech landscape was the second step. And the reason that entire thing came into existence was after a few years of trying to persuade marketing executives that, you know, you probably should hire some more technical talent in your team. And so many CMOs like, why? <laughs> We're marketing. Why would we need people to understand code? Uh, you know, I'm a marketer, Jim. You know, I'm a doctor, not a tech engineer. All right, whatever that Star Trek thing. And so I put together that first MarTech landscape, frankly, just to like bring an exhibit A to the case of like, look at how many different technologies you are now dependent on to execute your mission of marketing. Who in your organization understands all these things now dependent on? And that was kind of when the light bulb went off. And to be honest, then this thing about the landscape and the way it went, I would have never predicted that. I mean, we just sort of went back to it year over year to like update it. And then as we're updating it and it starts growing at this exponential rate, um, I mean, that gave as much of a surprise to me as anyone else. Yeah, I'm, it's it's staggering, right? Like I, I forget which year I was referring to, but I think it was like a 2010 versus a 2018 or 19 at some point. Like we're doing that at, at my consultancy, and like look at how crazy this this has gotten, right? And like to your point, like entirely new disciplines of people have really been. Not, I truly believe marketing is an accidental discipline in and of itself, just because of the people that often end up there. But the you know, from a an output perspective, like this has yielded a massive amount of investment, you know, time, people, money, the the whole nine. I'm curious, just kind of tangential tangential question. Is it a good thing? Like as you look back and and kind of compare that evolution across the years, like do you think fundamentally marketing is better for that technology? I'm sure it is at a cursory level, but like at 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 the conceptual level, like has technology made us better marketers? Oh, well, that's interesting because it's, I think it's actually really hard to put a value judgment, but let me phrase it this way. I think mm -hmm. everyone knows marketing has changed tremendously over this past decade and not just from the technology in all sorts of ways, but it's actually very hard for us to quantify that change um, because, I mean, it's, it's so amorphous and so embedded in so many aspects of how we work. And that's kind of marketing in general as well, right? Like I, that's, I have a love-hate relationship with attribution for that exact same reason, right? <laughs> like, but fair enough. Just mar marketing is, is you know, there's a lot to it that uh, can't be measured in the way that people try to measure things oftentimes. That's fair enough. And so all I would simply say is that through that lens of, you know, how you have certain proxy analytics, you know, to say like, well, we can't actually get the attribution here, but we've got a proxy that gives us a sense. Mm -hmm. I would argue that's what that MarTech landscape is, is it is, it is not the ground truth of marketing, but it is a 
proxy to quantify the scale of how much change has been happening in marketing. Um, and then to the question of has it made marketing better or worse, I would say it's probably made it worse. And the reason it's made it worse is not really the fault of the technology. It's uh, something I've written about a few times. I call it MarTech's law because I feel like MarTech people run into this. This idea that technology changes exponentially, organizations and people don't change exponentially. We change mm -hmm. logarithmically. Change is hard. And I think that's a big part of what you see here is the technology actually is enabling phenomenal new marketing capabilities, but the effort and investment and enablement, you know, and talent development that needs to go into really being able to keep up with that change and harness that is just really hard. And mm -hmm. candidly, most companies have not have underinvested in that dimension. And as a result, I think, yeah, you probably do see a lot of cases where, okay, there's all this technology, but now we're not really using it very well. And, and you, you see more than a few teams that they've kind of lost their way. You know, yeah. it's not marketing the way they used to know, know it, but it's not actually the ideal nirvana. Hey, it's magical tech unicorn marketing either. It's somewhere in that muddy middle and it's a really hard place. Yeah. Yeah. One it's why I just to say we could have an entire, you know, number of shows on marketing education. <laughs> right. And I think if that's to your point, it's why so much of it becomes shelfware. I mean, they, they, they sell you the vision, right? And marketing has spend, so they have to spend it somewhere. So they buy software and a lot of it overlaps and, but they don't implement the changes needed on the organization or the teams and the training or, or just philosophically how to execute upon this. Yeah. And it's a blame that goes across the industry. I mean, you know, the vendors that sell the vision but don't provide, you know, enough of the enablement and training support. I mean, ultimately they pay the price for that because this stuff does result in churn, uh, you know, eventually. But then, yeah, I mean, you know, the buyers have a, have agency in this too. Uh, you know, and after, after a couple of decades of this, if you're still basically just taking what a vendor says to you at face value without having your own, you know, like framework and rubric for deciding what you need to do. It's not entirely the vendor's fault at that point. Like you, you got totally. to take the ownership of this at this point. <laughs> so I'm uh, curious, as you know, Sean, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, let me ask you this on, on just the MarTech landscape and, and what you've seen, have, has it ever gotten smaller? Have you seen any uh, trends towards consolidation uh, <laughs> whatsoever? I swear to God, every year we set into this and I'm like, this is the year it will consolidate. Um, and every year it doesn't. You know, and, and we're going into another cycle here. I can already tell you, uh, we published, it was like 11,000 in May. We've got something like another 3,000 companies that have come in since then that are in our queue. Not saying all 3,000 will make it, but we're already just halfway through the period. And there's a lot of new, and part of this is because of the explosion of all the, you know, micro stuff that's being created with AI and these AI APIs. Now, I think it's interesting because the thing about the MarTech landscape, the graphic we produce, is in many ways, it's a very terrible representation of what the industry actually is, because every logo is a little dot, you know? And so Adobe is a little <laughs> upspot dot. Oh, and you know, this AI thing that, you know, two people just put together in a couple of weeks and bought up there, that's an equally sized little dot. And you're like, okay, hang on a second here. You know, if you actually were to look at it, you know, from like, you know, uh, scale of adoption, you know, market share, you know, revenue, it is a long tail, 
you know, and there's a relatively narrow set of the head of the tail. There's a very interesting mid tail where you actually got a lot of companies of decent size, but it's not clear any of them are ever going to become a multi-billion dollar uh, juggernaut. You've got a really, 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 really long tail. Yeah, I'm curious, what what is that process? What's that look like? You know what I mean? Like, obviously, we've talked about the amount of time it takes to, to invest in, in this, but how do you guys actually kind of, you know, vet those technologies? I'm sure there's a lot of disagreement around where, you know, the category something should actually fall into and so on. You mentioned, you know, there's 3,000 that you already started tracking and not all of those will make it there. So can you give us some kind of just insight as to what goes on behind the curtain there? Yeah, I mean, how it works today is different than how it works. One uh, I started is a much more systematized uh, process now. Um, I have a collaborator, Franz from Erzba. Uh We work on this together. Uh, he's actually assembled a small team, both of um, multiple contributors, uh, you know, across different regions and markets that help, uh, you know, really bring expertise of what's the actual current MarTech companies in Finland. Because surprisingly, there are some amazing MarTech companies that only exist in the world of Finland, uh, you know, but then also like bringing a certain amount of like machine learning to this as well, too. So the way we look at it now is we get submissions from either the companies themselves or, you know, collaborators of ours. We do a first pass that's, you know, like sort of a machine learning thing of, you know, trying to just bet like basic like, yes, this is a real thing. And even sort of just getting a sense of, you know, based on the content they have in their website, where is the likely category? And then ultimately there is a human who reviews every single one. Our criteria is very, it's a very low bar. You know, we do just want to have like some sense like, okay, this does appear to be a real company and it is a software company, not a, like a services company, which gets harder because there's some other dynamics happening in the industry where you're seeing service companies like start producing all these like packaged apps uh to more and more packaged app companies like offering more and more services it's a it's a very complex world i would say we don't overly stress on the categories and to be honest if i mean you know when you look at it the category buckets we use are so high level still at this point that i mean this is one of the things where we start to get into that I I think it's a useful uh, be a talisman or bring it back. It's a useful thing at some level for us to have conversations about what our industry is and the dynamic of it. But I actually don't think the landscape itself is very useful in like, oh yeah, this is utility of like, you right. know, I should design my stack or identify my vendors. I'm like, take that, take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> Makes sense. What's been the biggest surprise to you doing this for, for you know, 10, 15 plus years now? I mean, by far the biggest surprise has been this explosion of software. And it's interesting that, I mean, actually, it turns out, not surprisingly, this isn't just MarTech. I mean, mm. in fact, actually, um, well, we've gotten some data on this, like the number of fintech companies in the world far exceeds the number of companies who are on the MarTech landscape, um, you know, uh, and you actually start to go across other industries, like the software that's used by um, uh, product and engineering and IT. Yeah. Oh my God, that landscape is far larger, you know, than uh, the MarTech landscape, which is uh, ironic because you sometimes hear, you know, like IT people being like, yeah, yeah, I need to consolidate that MarTech stuff. 
And then when you actually look at the stack that most IT organizations use, you're like, oh, wow, you know, a little time for some self-reflection, guys. Um, but um, I think that dynamic's been surprising. But it's one of those things like once it actually happens, you look back and I don't know, maybe this is what we always do is we rationalize things in retrospect. But it's like, oh, yeah, I kind of see how these changes around what happened with software and open source and cloud computing and the internet and, you know, all these things. Like, ultimately, it was almost inevitable that the structure of how so the software industry was going to look from the 1990s to the 2020s was going to be radically different. But I don't know. I, certainly, I didn't predict <laughs> that change. That was a retrospective of like, what the hell is going on here? Like, how is this even possible? And then you start digging and then you're like, yeah, all right. Uh, it's, it is possible. <laughs> right. So I'm curious, just given your current role at HubSpot and keeping in mind kind of how this started as a passion project, like, do you, what do you, what do you view your role at HubSpot as your main gig these days? Or is like this passion project started to kind of bleed over in a way that there's very little line between the two in terms of like what you're learning and, and being informed by on the, on, on the MarTech side. Yeah. I mean, I do. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, my role at HubSpot is most definitely a full-time job. Uh, it is a full-time plus job. You know, when I joined HubSpot, Brian and Darmesh, who brought me in, the co-founders of the company, um, yeah, we're actually, we talked about it at the very beginning. They were very cool with me continuing my passion project. And they were also very cool about like, you know, just making sure like there was a boundary in my favor in the sense that I never had anyone from HubSpot, you know, ever come to me and be like, hey, you need me right on cheap wiretech about this, or can you change this graphic here, make the HubSpot logo a little bigger? Never, <laughs> you know, which has been great because, you know, uh, again, I'm very open with people that I have both these hats. And so anyone who's reading anything from me should... Certainly be aware that, yeah, I uh, I have interests, whether even if I'm fully conscious of them all the time or not, you know, I'm going to have both right. here. But at the same time, like, I'm quite certain the reason why people read Sheep Wiretech is because they're not coming to it to get a perspective on a specific vendor. They're trying to get a little bit of sense of, like, what's happening in the broader picture here? And if I were to, uh, yeah, compromise that, I mean, you know, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I just think I'd lose my readership. I just don't think... I mean, if they want to read about HubSpot, they'll go to the HubSpot blog. Uh, there's lots of great stuff there for that. So, but yeah, I mean, does it help me in what I do at HubSpot? Absolutely. I mean, again, it's kind of like the perfect match in the sense that, you know, what am I doing with my passion project? I'm trying to understand this landscape of who are the different players and the different categories and how are they evolving? And, oh, what is my responsibility at HubSpot? It's like, oh, do we have the right players and the right categories? They integrated with HubSpot and where is that going? So it's definitely a, a, a complimentary uh, relationship, but I try and keep uh, anything from an operational perspective, at least enough distance in my head that like, yeah. Right. What they say from Ghostbusters crossing the streams. Don't never cross the streams, man. <laughs> never cross it. <laughs> I think it's so interesting. I mean, it's it's like the perfect fit, right? Like you put in your 10,000 hours to become this expert in the smart tech world, right? And then you come into one of the leading smart tech organizations in the world to run their ecosystem. And, and you arguably have kind of the closest finger on the pulse 
to what's actually going on in the in the martech ecosystem world and so you know tactically how does that influence your day to day when you're when you're strategizing with your teams on where to go next and different ways to grow that ecosystem within the hubspot like how closely do those two things aligned and you know how do you kind of integrate that into your overall strategy yeah it's probably the one thing uh, I'm not sure if my teams love me or hate me for this. <laughs> right. I, I am the one who's constantly like, hey, have you guys thought about this? Or, you know, this right. seems to be changing over here. Uh, and they're like, yeah, we've got already a ton on our plate. Scott. Thank you for letting us know about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's largely what it comes down to is just trying to identify, you know, again, HubSpot serves a certain segment of the market. Um, you know, it's incredibly strong in SMB. It's now getting very good penetration in the mid-market, say like the 200 to 2,000 employee organizations. In all fairness, it's not an enterprise player. HubSpot's not trying to sell to the Fortune 500 or the Fortune 1000. Uh, whereas like in the work I do in Chief Martech, it actually spans the broader range and if anything probably skews a little bit more on the enterprise uh side of things just because frankly it was in the enterprise where a lot of these marketing technologist hybrids first arose you know necessity is a mother and so there's definitely a thing where i would say like okay maybe half of the stuff i run into in chief wiretech is actually applicable to stuff that hubspot should be thinking about or doing or you know partnering with these companies there's another half of that's like, yeah, it's just not really relevant to HubSpot's market at this point. And so, uh, yeah, no need to, you know, muddy the water. Did I just run into the meeting and go have you checked out this MarTech stuff in Finland? <laughs> <laughs> What's this AI thing? We got to look into it. Yeah. My goodness. <laughs> so the, the, the billion dollar question, right? Like I find so many folks like this concept, like they gravitate towards with it, towards it. They, it makes sense. They agree with it. People tend to get stuck on the starting line there. Like, what what do I want to truly invest this massive amount of time in, right? Like, what what do I have a passion about that's going to propel me through what are the natural kind of ebbs and flows to, to any process? What, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about where they want to invest that, that time, that resource into developing this type of deep expertise? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a double edged sword um, because it's um, there's a term for this in economics, right? It's opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there is value in the world for people who are jacks of all trades, um, and there's a whole bunch of skills you can learn as a general manager and all sorts of stuff that actually you don't need this like ten thousand hour depth in something, you know, to like for a whole series of really amazing careers. I think. If you are going to take the deep expertise, you know, path, frankly, the fact that most people are not going to be willing to do that is a little bit of a competitive advantage for you anyway, because you can kind of like carve out a space that you probably will have fewer people, you know, just from a personal brand perspective, right? You're going to be able to match, you know, what you'll bring. That being said, to get there, it it's just that, you know, it's that multi-year journey. And so... If you're doing it purely from a, oh, what might be a career way I can make a lot of money or a quarter or something like that. I mean, good luck with that. I feel like, yeah, if it's going to be something that's going to be years of your life, boy, if it's not something that you're going to really love the journey as much as the destination, don't do it. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, like anything, you've got to have a pretty solid knowledge of yourself to figure out 
if you're the type of person that can really sustain something like that and, and kudos and, and credit to, to what you've been able to do there. Certainly it's, it's, it's uh, truly commendable and amazing. So Scott, uh, as we wrap up here, like there's so many places that folks can engage with you on, like what's the best way for someone to actually get a hold of you, dive in a little bit deeper. Yeah. Wow. Once upon a time, it used to be Twitter. <laughs> you mean what's going on here? Um, and so I guess you can still reach out to me on X. Um, but I'm actually finding a lot of engagement uh, around LinkedIn uh, these days. Um, I do a lot of sharing on there. And my blog is Chief Martech without the H at the end. That's another story for another day. But yeah, just Chief Martech without the H.com. And uh, yeah, between that and LinkedIn, yeah, get a hold of me. And hey, if you're interested in the HubSpot ecosystem, it's uh, ecosystem.hubspot.com. And happy to chat about that anytime, too. Who's squatting out there on uh, Chief Martech with an H? Wow, that's a great question. I have a look at that. Once upon a time, there was actually like a, a marine technology uh, company. Yeah, uh, anyway. <laughs> that makes yeah, that's the other MarTech. You know, how do I keep the barnacles off my boat? <laughs> well, Scott, th thanks so much for for joining us. Really great conversation. Again, if you're if you're tuned in, give us a follow, give us a subscribe. It's uh, what helps us get our message out there. Thanks again for joining, and we'll see you next time on The Cheat Code.